0: 1 Peter chapter 2 starting at verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king, as the supreme authority, or to governors, who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honour the king. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But... If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. This is God's word.
1: Good morning, all. We're only going as far as verse 17 this morning. The rest is for next week. And isn't it extraordinary? Uh, just wandering our way through 1 Peter and just happened to get to this passage about kings and governors on the Diamond Jubilee. Let's pray as we uh, as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for all that it shows us of how Christians are to live in this world that you made under the authorities that you've put in place. Please, Lord, use it to mould us, to shape us, to make us more the individuals, the church that you long us to be in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you as we kick off, are you personally a threat to society? I'm talking particularly to Christians here, actually. Uh, Are you a threat to society? Are Are you hazardous to our society today? Uh, you're probably sitting there thinking, little old me, I've never been in trouble with the police. Uh, well, good, good. Uh, that's a good thing. Uh, but there's a rising tide of opinion in our society that says, if you're religious, particularly perhaps if you're Christian, then that is a threat to the good order, the good government of our society. Now why would people say something like that? Well, it's because we believe in God, if we're Christians. We believe that God has spoken to us and that his word to us is the supreme authority and so for us there's no higher authority than than god and what he has said he's higher in authority than any human governor any human uh, uh, council so what he says goes more than anything else and so there's a potential conflict there isn't there what what happens uh, when you've got god the the highest authority and then a kind of subsidiary level of human authorities. What does that mean for our allegiance to the Queen, to the government, to the police, the laws of the land? Now it's interesting. Until recently, this wasn't much of an issue. Certainly here in Britain and in many parts of the West, um, there was a general consensus in this country that Britain was a Christian country that uh, the laws of the land agreed with what God had revealed in Scripture. And so, therefore, God was on the side of our government. The government was on the side of God. Simple, no problem. Uh, Everything's easy. But now there's um, every chance in our day and age that perhaps the next prime minister might be the first in our history to declare himself an atheist. That lobbying groups like um, uh, the National Secular Society, which is gaining a lot of influence today uh, will increasingly set the tone of public debate. And to be fair, this coalition government that we've got has moved away a little bit from the we don't do God uh, talk of the Labour government under Alistair Campbell's influence. And there's even been a few reassertions of Britain is a Christian country and that kind of view. Uh, But the assumption that goes along with that seems to be that God, if he is an authority, moves with the times and changes what he requires of us to fit with whatever the laws of today might say. And those of us who believe that God has spoken once and for all, unchangeably in his word, are left behind by that movement, and therefore regarded by uh, many people with increasing suspicion, even with fear. And uh, recently I read uh, this comment, Christians can't be trusted to be loyal to our institutions because they are ultimately loyal to God. Only those who place the state above everything, says this person, including above God, can be true patriots. Uh, On the National Secular Society website, it says this, the the National Secular Society is often a lone voice of rationality in the wilderness that is dominated by religious dogma, bigotry, and political manipulation. That is the kind of influence they are seeking to now, how do we explain this sudden upsurge of suspicion just before we uh, see what this passage has to say about it? Now this is a, a simplistic account of uh, the last ten years or so, but in a sense you can trace this current change of view Um, back to uh, 9-11 and the terrorist atrocities since then. Obviously, there was moves going on before that as well. But suddenly, at 9-11 and onwards, there's a group of people that you begin to realize uh, have an allegiance to a higher power that supersedes all allegiance to the countries they're in, even to human lives. And so uh, from there, a suspicion of Islamist movements across the world has, has risen. Are they living in Britain, America, wherever they are, just waiting for a chance to overthrow the government. Uh, And rightly or wrongly, Muslims everywhere have come under that kind of suspicion. But then people turned around and said, well, wait a minute, aren't Bush and Blair doing the same thing? Aren't Christian fundamentalists, for want of a better word, doing exactly the same as the Muslim ones? And suddenly Christians become a threat too, at least the ones who see the Bible as God's authoritative word. Uh, Those same words, fundamentalist, militant, fanatic, gets just applied across the board, uh, and often we're viewed with suspicion. One commentator asks, at what point does religion become dangerous? And he says the answer, uncomfortable as it may be, is that it is inherently dangerous, blindly accepted as true, and then forced upon us all. Now, do you relate at all to that? suspicion, that slight discomfort about what the consequence might be of having people who have God as a a higher authority. Is it a good thing for people to obey a higher power? Clearly it's not always a good thing for people to obey something that they think is a higher power. Maybe you're here looking into Christian things this morning and this is something that makes you nervous, concerns you. What would becoming a Christian mean for my relationship with the government, with this country, with the police? Would the Bible turn me against them in some way or perhaps just leave me free to ignore them? Well, this section of 1 Peter addresses precisely this concern. So listen up if this is an issue for you that you're worried about. And if you're a Christian, this uh, question is absolutely vital for us as well. What precisely is our relationship with the governing authorities? Because Peter, so far in this letter, has said repeatedly that Christians are aliens and strangers in the world. And that's how he addresses us again in verse 11 of chapter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. The very beginning of the letter took us into that theme. He called us God's elect, strangers in the world in uh, chapter 1 verse 1. And then in verse 17 of chapter 1, live your lives as strangers here. Why are we strangers? Why are we aliens and strangers in the world? Well, chapter 2 and verse 4, we are chosen by God and precious to him. And if you were here last week, there was a crescendo of images that underlined this identity of Christians in God. Uh, So verse 9, we are uh, God's spiritual house, we're a chosen people, we're a a royal priesthood, uh, a people belonging to God in order to declare his praises. Verse 10, once you were not a people but now you are the people of God. Christians have been given an immensely strong identity as God's people, Peter says. So home for us is not ultimately in this world as it currently is. Here we are strangers, aliens, foreigners to some extent, because we don't belong here. We belong to Christ, to his kingdom, to his nation. And Peter's been drumming that identity into his readers since the very beginning of the letter. And you've got to wonder, what on earth would the suspicious secularists make of that? What implications does that have for our relationship with this nation and its government? Surely that confirms it. Christians' loyalties lie elsewhere. So Peter has really begged the question that we're asking this morning, and this is a big turning point in this letter, where Peter turns to deal with the question of how should Christians relate to the world around, given that we are aliens and strangers, foreigners in the world. What kind of foreigners will we be? That could go a number of ways, couldn't it? Uh, A foreigner in an alien country, you could be submissive to the laws, you could be offhand rude non-compliant uh, you could be subversive revolutionary you could you could try and start a war it could go any number of ways so Peter needs to clarify our relationship with the world so how should Christians who are aliens and strangers in the world relate to it two points we're at war and we're in submission and Peter's giving us a general principle in that first point in verses 11 and 12 we're at war against sin for the world's sake and then in the first of many applications in uh, verses 13 to 17 uh, he says that we're in submission to human authorities for the lord's sake so we're going to look at that general principle we're at war uh, in verses 11 and 12 and then the first of the applications in 13 to 17 so first verses 11 and 12 Dear friends, says Peter, in verse 11, living as aliens and strangers in the world will mean war. Oh dear, war. That is not the word we wanted to hear in this context of our relationship with the world. But look look how it's used. Peter says uh, this is not about the Christian's relationship to the world around, but it's an inner battle. Uh, To abstain from sinful desires, which war against your soul, says Peter. You're in a war, he says, but not against society, not against the government, not against the rulers or people or nations or governments. The war is inside you. There's a battle going on for your soul. Now, what is going on there? Uh, Why is this inner struggle against sin relevant for our relationship with the world? Uh, now, the word, word for desires used in verse 11 is used a couple of other times in the letter, which really help us to see what's going on here. In chapter 1, verse 14, Peter says, Do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. Now, that helps, doesn't it? Uh, these desires are about wanting to conform with the world around us, with the behavior of the world around us to join in with whatever it does, even when it's sinful. Uh, The same Greek word for desires comes up again in chapter 4, where Peter says you've spent enough time doing in the past what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, which is the same word as desires, uh, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. Now, apart from the fact that the NIV uses a bunch of quite quaint Victorian words to describe what's going on there, we get the idea. Peter says in the past... Before you became God's chosen people, you did all these things, which are exactly the same as what the world around you does. You lived the same way as everybody else, indulging in all the same things that everybody else does. So if people around you drank too much, it was just normal and natural to do the same. If they slept around or leered at women, then you just went with it, because why wouldn't you? You're part of the same culture, the same society. You belong to the world, you conformed to its pattern. If everyone around you thinks it's okay to push 90 miles an hour on the motorway, uh, ooh, is that biting home for anybody? Uh, and then why wouldn't you? Uh, if anyone else uh, just bad mouths and gossips somebody in your office uh, about an awkward, unpopular person or just avoids them because it's slightly annoying trying to spend time with them, uh, and no one's got time to be kind, well, why wouldn't you just do the same thing? And so on, if the culture's one of white lies, join in. If the society dresses provocatively, join in. And Peter's saying, that's what you were, that's the world around you, and that is the culture that you are no longer at home in. That is the culture that you are aliens and strangers in. Before you came to Christ. Now, when you want to do those things, those things are warring against your soul." Now, gosh, that is strong language, isn't it? A war for your soul. Bitterly strong language. It's a fight for your survival. Your soul, your identity is so bound up with Christ, says Peter. You're a, a holy nation with Christ. So don't lose that identity in this war against your soul. It's the same kind of thing that we mean when we talk about people joining a, a corporation or a, a an organization that maybe go in with high ideals. They're going to be different to everybody else. They're not going to lose their ideals. And then after time passes, and they just absorb the, the culture around of the organization and become just exactly the same as everybody else. Indistinguishable from the masses. And Peter says, don't conform. You're in the world as aliens and strangers, but don't just become like everybody. Don't sell your soul." fight for it. Fight for your identity as God's people in the world. And that's why we don't just do it for ourselves. Peter says we do it for the world, on the world's behalf. We're, we're warring against the sin in our heart for the sake of the world. So verse 11, live such good lives among the pagans that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now this is the flip side of refusing to conform. There's a war going on in our souls, but externally this is designed to be seen by the world around us. When you stop conforming, you start standing out. And you'll find yourself doing good. That's the emphasis of verse 11. Live such good lives amongst the pagans that they may see your good deeds. Peter says, stop conforming and do good. Do public good that can be seen so that people can know from their eyes that you're living differently. You have a soul, an identity in Christ to maintain in the eyes of the world. So you're fighting to maintain that for their sake so they can see it. Now, what will result from doing that, according to Peter? Uh, two things he mentions in verse 11. First, they'll accuse you of doing wrong. Uh, he says, we've already mentioned the kind of general accusations that often get leveled against Christians. But what happens when you're suddenly the only one in a group that refuses to get drunk? the only one who won't share the crude joke or uh, the cruel gossip, the only one that won't look at that pornographic picture that th- is being shared around, or lust over the, the babe that's just been pointed out at two o'clock, or whatever it might be. Well, In various ways, the, uh, people will start calling you, uh, depending on their personality, an idiot, a weirdo, <laughs> the old-fashioned one, the repressed wet blanket that spoils a society, or maybe it'll just be more subtle than that. It won't be anything blatantly insulting. Uh, But you'll feel it, you'll know it, it'll be said. Sometimes it can get as serious as being called a traitor to the group or to the company. Uh, An old friend of mine came to Christ while working for an IT firm and Uh, Before he became a Christian, it had been the culture in his firm to entertain clients by taking them to strip clubs. And there was an expectation that he would do that uh, on behalf of the firm and the clients. That was normal. That was what everybody did. Uh, Presumably it wasn't written into his job description, but it was so expected that his job was almost undoable without it. And he came to Christ and started pulling back from, from doing these things, and suddenly it got very, very awkward. You can imagine the conversations with his colleagues. Come on, what's the matter with you? You used to do this. You've just lost another client to another firm. What, what are you trying to do? You're trying to bring the, the firm down? You and your Christian values are not wanted here. They're so alien. And eventually he had to resign and join another firm because it was just unsustainable for him to try to hold on to that job as a Christian, sadly. Peter says, you will be accused. People will speak against you in private whispers and public ridicule. And that was already happening to the churches that he was writing to. We know from uh, some of the writings in the first and second centuries that Christians were accused of all kinds of things in those days. Christians, have you heard? They're cannibals. They talk about eating flesh and drinking wine in their Lord's Supper meeting. Christians, have you heard? I I think they they commit incest. They talk about each other as brothers and sisters, and then they greet each other with a holy kiss when they arrive for their meetings. We know these things were being said about the early church. We've got documentary evidence that these things were being said. Early Christianity had a big public relations problem, uh, and things were going to get worse after Peter's letter uh, the Emperor Nero was going to come to the throne, and then uh, it would get violent. Then death was a possibility. But here, in Peter's letter, it's verbal abuse. And how very like our society that is. It's not necessarily the violence uh, here and now in Britain, yet. It's not necessarily that anyone is in danger of losing their life at the moment in this country. But verbal abuse, oh yes, very much so. Very much so. So that's one implication of standing out. But, secondly, Peter says something absolutely wonderful. He says, look beyond all of that. Look beyond the verbal abuse you might get. And something fabulous could happen. They could see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. He says in verse 12. Peter says, you know what, those very same people who ridicule you and deride you and accuse you of things, underneath it all, you don't know what's going on. God could be working in their heart. Maybe they know that actually loving people is right and lusting is wrong, that truth is right, that lies is wrong, that injustice is right, that unfairness is wrong, and so on and so on, and pushed far enough, most people would agree at some level with those things. So think, even as the the jokes and the accusations fly against you, if they do, God could be working in those very same people's hearts. People's consciences might be deeply struck as they watch you live and uh, see your life is different. Your life is good, in a sense. Not perfect, but different. You're not driven by the same uncontrolled desires that everybody else seems to be. You don't just conform with what is normal and instinctive for everybody else. And some of those conscience-stricken people, says Peter, where God works in their hearts, well, they'll be among the people gathered around God's throne on that final day. What a great thing to pray for. What a great thing to be aware might be going on in our daily life. I recently heard back from one of our students who's spent this year abroad on an exchange scheme. And he said that he'd really struggled to build friendships while he was there. Uh, he felt as if he was a very shy guy amidst a bunch of very boisterous people. And he, just, he, he didn't really feel as if he'd made much headway in getting to know people or commending Christ to them in any way. But he did say that, I guess I was known for uh, not joining in with a bunch of stuff that, that the other people were doing. That's about as far as I got, he said. Well, yes, of course there's more that you can do to represent Christ, and the letter of 1 Peter is going to say a lot about that. But God can use that. That is a thing to to praise God for if, uh, if a shy student is able to not join in with uh, the other things that are going on, uh, the passions of the world. That is great. God can use that. It's amazing to hear the testimony of a lot of people that come to Christ. Very, very often people will say, amid all the things that they understood about Jesus and him dying on the cross for their sins, often the beginning of it is, well, I met some Christians, and there was something about their relationships, the quality of how they cared for people, the way they lived and and didn't do things that everybody else did. They were different, and it was attractive and compelling, and I, I wanted some of that for myself. For a lot of people, that is the way in uh, when they begin to realize what the gospel is and see its power. There was a a survey done recently of uh, people who've come to Christ from a Muslim background. Uh, Apparently 750 people were surveyed from 30 different countries. They were asked, what were the initial reasons for you getting interested in Christianity and thinking about whether it was true? And here are the top three reasons Number one, Christians practiced what they preached. Number two, Christians appeared to have loving marriages where women were treated as equals. Number three, Christians didn't seem to be violent with each other. Gosh, those are the top three. And lots of other things followed, realizing about God's grace and Jesus dying on the cross, but the beginning of recognizing the goodness of God and the gospel came through seeing the the good lives of Christians. That's something to very much bear in mind if you're in dialogue with any Muslims who uh, are chatting to you about what they believe. So Peter's general principle for uh, our passage and for the next few weeks, actually, for the next couple of chapters of his letter, uh, is be at war with these passions for the sake of the world. Don't conform. Be different. Talk to the person that no one else will talk to Uh, Refuse the shortcuts and the white lies that everybody else just goes for. Don't contribute to the the cruel and lusting conversations. Uh, Keep doing whatever uh, gets you verbal abuse uh, here, even if it does. Uh, And then see what God does. He might use that to bring people to himself. So that's the principle. That's why we've dwelt so long on it this morning. Uh, That is the principle that underpins all of the rest of what follows in the next few weeks. Uh, We war against the passions within our soul for the sake of the world, the good lives that the world can see. And a few minutes at the end of today, on this first application that is so relevant for our Diamond Jubilee Day, we're in submission. We're not at war. We're in submission to human authorities for the Lord's sake. How should Christians relate to the Queen, to the government? The answer is, submit. That one word, uh, the war is with our own desires, with authorities you submit. Uh, let's read from verse thirteen. Peter says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Uh, just look at how blanket a command that is. There's no exceptions mentioned. Uh, submit to every authority instituted among men, says Peter. There's the king, uh, the queen for us, I guess. There's David Cameron, there's Barack Obama, there's governments. Maybe that would be local authorities, local governments, uh, the rest of parliament, local councillors at various levels. Um, uh, also, presumably the police, the law courts, they're the ones that administer justice in this sense in our society. It is an all-consuming blanket, no exceptions command so much so that when you hear it, I bet your mind is doing this. What if they 're cruel? what if they 're evil what if um, uh, what, what about countries that need revolutions to overthrow an evil dictator? What about normally good leaders that that do uh, pass a one bad law? What do you do then? Uh, what if they command something that 's Contrary to God's will, what about democracy? How does that work? How do you uh, disagree with a government or, or vote for the opposition without being uh, uh, non-submissive? What about demonstrations? What about going on strike? And our minds just go off on an endless trail of, what about all these exceptions? Uh, and they're very valid questions, and there are great passages in the Bible to go to, to uh, find out the answers. Not this one, I'm sorry. Um, I'm going to say put all of those exceptions aside because this passage isn't designed to address the what-ifs. Yes, uh, you could go to places in Acts where the apostles disobeyed the authorities when they were given a direct command that contravened a direct command of God. God uh, took precedence in that case. But that's another passage for another day. Um, Here we're just given the blanket command during the week one very cheeky church apprentice suggested that i should reprimand our american brothers and sisters this morning for um their rebellion against king george the 3rd in 1776 and uh, suggest that today the the diamond jubilee would be a wonderful day to come back into the fold and cease that that rebellion um i'm sure we'd happily welcome you back but uh, uh for for his safety i won't mention the apprentice uh this passage is not about that. It is about the blanket rule, not the ex- exceptions. And it says, submit. And it says submit for two reasons. Firstly, we do it for the Lord's sake. And that is uh, very explicit in verse 13. God is our highest authority. And he demands that we submit to human authorities. That's, that's the link. God's the highest authority. He demands that we submit to human authorities. In a sense, that resolves all of our our question from uh, the beginning. This is very good news. If only this was better known in our society. If people realized that obeying God actually entailed obeying human authorities, perhaps the suspicion would die away a little. And verse 14, God sent them. They are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. It is God's choice, as we said earlier in the service, that Queen Elizabeth and David Cameron and George Osborne and Barack Obama and whoever else are in their posts at this particular time in history. Now, does that mean they'll always do his will? No, of course not. Does it mean we'll always approve of their decisions? No. But for the Lord's sake... We will submit unless we're given a a command that directly contravenes God's command. That is the, the first why. God himself has instituted those authorities and commanded us to submit to them. But there's a second reason why. And again, it is for the world's sake that we do it. This is not just for our own godliness. This is for the world's sake. So verse 15. It is to silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, says Peter, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Peter says, as much as you can, make this known, that God wants us to submit to human authorities. Make it so well known by what you do and what you say that the idle chatter... Of people who say otherwise get silenced the you know the irate blogging of the angry secularists at the bottom of uh, the Guardian website uh, the fearful person who doesn't know better because all they know of religion is what's represented in the secular media make it so that this is known in society uh, that people can't in ignorance say oh yeah Christians they they're anti-government now, that's a challenge isn't it Make our submission to government known in society. It has big implications for how we speak of our leaders, especially if we disagree with them. No more joining in with uh, the language of the the Tory scum versus the Labour liars or whatever the the insulting phrases might be, or the more sophisticated uh, but equally insulting versions of those. Uh, Sadly, the the political system in Britain seems to be riddled with cynicism uh, and the press as well at all levels. Uh, And of course, politicians have at times caused and contributed to that as a problem. Um, But we've got to uh, avoid joining in with the the tabloid attitude to our leaders. Robust debate is fine. Uh, Comedy, even satire, these are are sanctioned and demonstrated elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, But with respect, always honoring our, our leaders. Those early Christians that follow Peter in the early church uh, set a fantastic example for us to follow. I was reading recently about uh, a very early writer in the second century, Justin Martyr, uh, and he wrote to the Romans, and he wrote to them to challenge them to investigate rumors of Christian behavior. He was writing as a Christian. He said to the Romans, When you hear rumors of bad behavior amongst Christians, investigate it. And he said, You can be confident. Very bold, isn't it? You can be confident that they will be exonerated. He mentioned to them that Jesus insisted on Christians paying their taxes, that uh, uh, that Christians would pray for the emperor. And he boldly claimed that Romans would find Christians to be moral, upright, law-abiding citizens who are the empire's best allies in securing good order. And a little bit later, another guy, Tertullian, uh, wrote that Christians prayed constantly for the stability and good order of the Roman Empire. They prayed constantly for the health of the emperor. He even said, Caesar is more ours than yours, for our God has appointed him. Now, that's not designed to uh, win friends, but uh, he said, Christians do more than you for his welfare. So as we finish this first application of that principle of living distinctive lives in the world, Remember these two things, war and submission. We're at war with desires, but that is an internal war in our soul for the sake of the world. And submission is what God calls us to, to the authorities. Verse 17 actually summarizes it beautifully, and this can be our, our application as we go away from today. Imagine this being your motto uh, as you get up each morning and leave the house. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honour the king. Four relationships there. I've put them on a little slide at the end to demonstrate uh, what Peter's doing here. The NIV slightly disguised it because the word respect is the same at the beginning and at the end. So it's respect everyone at the beginning of the verse and respect the king at the end. So can you see on the, uh, at the bottom there you've got respect everyone and respect the king. The king is just a human being, like everybody else, but therefore deserves your respect just like everybody else. Honor him because of his role, not because he's more uh, significant or important or valuable than you. Uh, So enjoy today. Enjoy celebrating the Queen's Diamond Jubilee, not because she's somehow more valuable than we are, but she's been given a role that deserves a particular uh, uh, honor and respect. But she is just a human being, just like the rest of us. So it's the same respect, in a sense, that we give to anyone. Uh, and then on the top level there, in the middle of the verse, we get love the brotherhood and fear God. You see, it's a step up in both senses. There's a step up in affection for the brotherhood of believers. And there's a step up in respect for God. It's fear God, not just respect God. So we do all of this. Because more than anything else, we fear God, our our ultimate authority, and he's the one who's told us to respect others. We do it because we care most about him and his place in society. Think about when you were on school trips and your teacher told you, whatever you do, wherever you are, you'll be representing your school, and everything you do will represent your school, and we will be watching you uh, to make sure that you're doing the right thing, or Brits abroad, (laughs) whatever Brits abroad do, they represent their country, and that can either be good or deeply, deeply embarrassing, depending on what they do. Well, if you know you're representing somebody, your school, your country, then whether you do that well depends how much you care for your school or your country. If you don't really care about your school's reputation, then you'll do whatever you like. If you don't really care about your country's reputation, you'll do whatever you like if we don't care that much about God's reputation in the world, then we won't do much in response to this passage. But if we care more than anything else for his place, for his authority, if we fear him as our God more than any other authority, then we will do everything we can to represent him well in society. Let's pray as we finish. Heavenly Father, we thank you very, very much for this passage. We thank you for all that it clarifies for us. We thank you that we can go out into the world knowing that you have called us to obey, to submit to the human authorities around us. And we pray, Lord, that we wouldn't spend all of our time uh, finding the, uh, the excuses, finding the, uh, the exclusions from that. But in the biggest, most general sense, we would determine to honor you by submitting to the Queen, to the government, to the laws of our country. And please, Lord, would you use that to win society to to Christ. Please, Lord, would people see us as as individuals, as a church, even today, and see that there is something different about us. See that you have made us good, not perfect, but good, different. Uh, And that that will commend the Lord Jesus. We pray that there will be those that we know in our families, in our workplaces, that will honour the Lord Jesus Christ on the day that God visits. In Jesus' name, Amen.